Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I like to joke uh, sometimes that my guest today, Warren Sofer, could engineer Mideast peace. One of his specialties is teaching people how to use mindfulness uh, to be better communicators. He's so good at this that I've actually used him personally before a tough conversation I needed to have. Um, as a longtime meditation teacher, he's got a lot of other areas of expertise as well and a really interesting personal story, all of which we're going to dive into. Hey, Oren. Hey, for Dan. Doing this. So I'll ask you the question I ask everybody, which is how, when, why, where did you start meditating? I started meditating when I was 19. I was here in New York going to college. And Columbia. Yes, and uh, things sort of started falling apart in my life. Um, just a, a bunch of different circumstances all coming together at the same time. And uh, I had heard about uh, people going to India to study abroad, and I found out about a program where you wake up 5 a.m. every morning, stay at a monastery, meditate twice a day, no drugs, no sex, no alcohol, and I just said, sign me up. Really? Yeah. <laughs> At 19, that was appealing to you? That was very appealing to me. I was I was doing a lot of drugs. I was um, I was an actor in New York, running all over the city, um, dating a lot, and it was just too much stimulation. And so I wanted to kind of clear the slate and start over. So how, how young did you start? Were you like a child actor? I was a child actor. I started at about 12 were you in movies, TV commercials, TV shows? TV commercials. My first gig was laughing in, was it in a Skittles commercial or nice. some kind of candy? Okay. Giggling in a candy commercial. <laughs> you don't remember which candy? I don't, oddly enough. I'm sure my mom does. Mm -hmm. You think I could get a hold of that, that the, the videotape? It's probably out there somewhere. Really? No, you mean it if, might, I, if it, I contacted your mother, I could It's get probably it. <laughs> in, uh, in a box in her attic along how, with other VHS tapes. How mad would you be at acting. me if I were to unilaterally? I, I would be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> I would enjoy hearing that again, those carefree days of Skittles and Starburst. And so you, did you do dramatic acting as well? I mean, uh, I acting did. in movies? And I did, actually. Yeah, the first, the first real sort of thing I did was a NYU student film. Uh, I just had a lead role in that. And then I did some other commercials. I did some um, other student films, educational videos. I did a couple things on Nickelodeon. Um, the, the sort of top, uh, the highest I got in the sort of acting career was uh, on Law & Order. I was, nice. I was actually the murderer on an episode. You were a murderer. I was. Yes. I think the episode was called Passion. So I still get random emails sometimes from people saying, are you the same Orrin J. Sofer from Are You Afraid in the Dark? Or, <laughs> or from people who know me saying, I was up late last night. I couldn't sleep. And I saw this episode of Law & Order. Was that you? <laughs> So, I, that I would love to see the 19 year old or 18 year old Orin the killer. Because anybody, I mean, I know you now, you are um, really not homicidal in any uh, way. <laughs> uh, so, it's, uh, uh, I would love to see that. So, but, but, but uh, just take me back to that 19 year old headspace for a second. Because mm -hmm. how bad could things really have been if, that, that celibacy, and meditation and uh, 5 a.m. wake-ups really was appealing. You know, it was one of those uh, times that 
we all go through different times in our lives um, where it just felt like everything came crashing in. I felt disoriented and lost and overwhelmed. Um, you know, a close group of friends of mine uh, all sort of cut me off and stopped talking to me. The woman I was dating broke up with me. Um, so it was, and and then certain sort of emotional things from my family and past were starting to come up. Um, and so I felt like I had lost touch with myself, who I was, uh, and yeah, I needed like a fresh start and I just wanted to get as far away as I could from everything I knew and really just start over. So you dropped out of school? Uh, I did not actually. I was fortunate enough that I got into the program, the study abroad program in Uh, India. I I see. Um, at a Buddhist monastery. And so I went and I did this program, which changed my life forever. Uh, And then I took a semester off and stayed over there, um, did some meditation retreats, traveled around. So how did it change your life? What what about it spoke to you? I felt like the first time I heard uh, the teachers talking about meditation and the practice and the philosophy behind it, I felt as if things that had always made sense to me intuitively, but no one had ever talked about were finally acknowledged. You know, that life's difficult and stressful, that we can't control what happens to us, that the more we have expectations and fight against what's happening, the harder we make things for ourselves, um, that well-being comes from within us, not from the world around us or getting things we want. Um, and, you know, I, I met people who uh, exuded a kind of happiness, stability, uh, and joyfulness that I hadn't quite seen or experienced before. The monks? Uh, they weren't actually monks. Both of, the, both of my first two teachers were laymen. Who were they? Um, Anagarka Manindraji. Oh, yes. Okay. And another man from Sri Lanka by the name of Godwin Samararatne. So Munindraji is uh, a familiar name to me just because he was the teacher of my teacher and yes. your teacher, Joseph yes. Goldstein. That's right. Uh, so it's kind of like anybody who learns from Joseph hears the name Munindra a lot. Yeah. Um, I've heard him described in a bunch of different ways, but but often um, uh, I've heard that he was a, he was kind of an uh, – I think you might have used this term with me – oddball. Yeah. He was a bit of an oddball. He was a quirky man, definitely. Yeah, but so uh, full of love and energy and uh, a, a kind of a, a childlike wonder and joy. I remember sitting around a table once with some of the other students on the program and, you know, we were just talking and he was asking uh, each person, you know, who they were, where they were from, and so each person was going to say their name and where they're from. And then and then he it kind of came around to him and he sort of looked and he said, and I am Munindra. And he started laughing. You know, just kind of the this sort of this the humor of like him having a name and who he was. So yeah. Even the most uh obvious things, he was able to find some novelty in them. Yeah. Yeah. And joy. Yeah. And uh so you did those three months and was it was it hard for you? I mean, as a nineteen year old kid oh to be meditating? It was it was impossible. <laughs> I was I mean, my friends who know me from then, my high school friends say I was a nutcase. And I, I was, you know, I'm just uh, um, really high energy, uh, nonstop, go, 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 really anxious. 
And uh, yeah, I couldn't sit still. Um, my mind was going, you know, a mile a minute. Uh, so yeah, it was definitely challenging. I, it's so funny to hear you talk about yourself that way because knowing you now, actually, just for the, in the name of full disclosure, as I said, we've spent a reasonable amount of time together because you've you've taught a couple of courses on on the ten percent happier app. So we've spent a bunch of days together, really uh, talking about practice and and. I have a really hard time imagining you being high energy, unable to sit still, a womanizer who does a lot of drugs, and like none of, or a child actor. Never mind a murderer. All of this seems so out of the trajectory of what I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so amazing about uh, awareness and the cultivation of of awareness is that it it's transformative. You know, it's not like it's not like I set out with some goal like I am going to become calmer and more focused or more patient and kind. It, you know, I didn't have some idea. I just knew uh, that I was unhappy and confused and lost, um, didn't enjoy being with myself a lot of the time because of everything that was going on. Um, and I just started following the instructions and looking within. Does the old Oren ever come out? I mean, you're, you keep looking in the other room as we tape this because you're, you're... Yeah, you're, when, when you're, you said... Your when you girlfriend said I, is here. When you said, I can't imagine an Oren who's, uh, you know, uh, anxious and high energy, she, she rolled her eyes and laughed. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it does. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the process. So the process I went through... Um, so I went to India when I was 19. I had these very, very powerful experiences meditating and, you know, really dove in deep. Um, and as I was saying to you the other day, when I came back, uh, people didn't recognize me, literally. And it was like a complete 180. And it took, it took years for those very powerful experiences to be integrated and so that the kind of... Um, aspects of my personality um, from when I was 19 uh, that got sort of uh, out of balance and slightly off kilter for those to come back into alignment with everything else that I had started learning and cultivating. And so, you know, for me, this is one of the interesting things about meditation practice. When people start practicing, they get really inspired, uh, new ideas come online, um, and there can be a lot of confusion about our relationship with our former self or you know, aspects of our life. And um, there can often be this sort of swing from one extreme to another or rejecting parts of ourself. And what I've seen in myself and other people I know is that there's a trajectory over a longer period of time towards more integration and balance, but it's not it's not something that happens in a week or a month or even a year. Oftentimes, it's it's the 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 process and the cycle can be years for all of the different aspects of ourself to uh, really come into balance and work together. So I shouldn't feel badly if the, if I've been meditating for seven years and I'm still a complete moron uh, frequently. I don't experience you as a complete moron. Maybe we haven't spent as much enough time together. Yeah, well, if my wife was in the other room, she'd be <laughs> laughing and rolling her eyes. So uh, it's uh, that's always the test, you know, the person who lives with you. Yes. Uh, so at what point did you know that you were going to make this into your career? It was, well, so, you know, that's an interesting question um, because 
uh, from one from one angle, I could say I never knew that, and it wasn't ever my intention to sort of make a career out of meditation. It's that's a very kind of even just sort of a new concept. The fact that there's even the possibility of you know making a livelihood uh, through one's own meditation practice. Uh, so in that regard, it was not something that I ever said. Okay, I'm going to make you know, a livelihood out of this. This is going to be my life path. In fact, for many years in my 20s, you know, I experienced the sort of usual angst of that period of not knowing what am I going to do. And You're in your late 30s now, right? That's right. Uh, so in your 20s, did you explore other more traditional career paths in your 20s? I did. I did. I'll, I'll get, I'll answer that in just one second. When I first got back from India, when I was at that point 20 years old, um, I was very clear, though, that I wanted to share this with other people. Mm. There was a very, very clear um, sense that I had of this has been this is so meaningful and so valuable. I want to learn this well enough to be able to teach it and share it with others. So that was very clear from early on. But there wasn't that sense of this is going to be my career or this is how I'm going to support myself and my family. So that piece actually just came on more on its own, sort of naturally from my own practice and spending time with teachers and so forth. Uh, other careers, um, I did a lot of work uh, in uh, alternative education, outdoor education, summer camps, um, working with uh, inner city youth doing job development, um, I worked in nonprofit finance and administration for a few years, um, connected with meditation. The organizations I was working with were the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, uh, the Mind-Body Awareness Project, which teaches meditation to incarcerated youth, but I was more on the administrative side of those organizations. Um, and so it was sort of a slow transition to teaching more to the point where now it's um, in various forms, what I do full-time. I, I work for another organization called Mindful Schools, which yeah. trains educators yeah. in mindfulness, and I help to develop their curriculum and write for their website and things like that. So you, one of your, as, as I said at the top of the show, one of your areas of expertise is, is mindful communication. Yeah. So why did you become interested in this? I, I think our listeners are going to, this, this is something that people are going to be really interested in. How can you use mindfulness to, you know, not pop off and say that dumb thing, and or and or actually listen to the person with whom you're you're uh, ostensibly talking, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. How did this become an area of interest for you? Why are you now teaching about it in such mm -hmm. a robust manner? It, again, it just kind of came about naturally. But I was I was living and working at the Insight Meditation Society, and we had, which is a meditation center in Barrie, Massachusetts, and we had a in-service professional training on communication, and I was about 25. I'd never heard of communication training. I never knew there was such a thing as getting better at your communication. And so it kind of blew my mind because here I was, I was meditating a lot um, and really sort of trying to cultivate these values of awareness and compassion and kindness and patience in my meditation. And then working in the kitchen, there would be some kind of a disagreement with a coworker or some difficulty, and I was finding it very difficult to actually come from those values when things got tense with another human being. 
So I got really interested as soon as I heard that there was this thing called even communication training. I never even knew that such a thing existed. And so then slowly I started taking classes and just learning because it was uh, just such an interest of mine to actually be able to translate the values and the principles of meditation into action, into my life. And communication seemed like a really useful way to do that. After a quick break, can it get weird if you don't say anything? I feel the need to sort of rush and fill every silence. Now you're looking at me <laughs> not saying anything. <laughs> After this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. There's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief. Lidocare has created a -a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. From a high, high level, what do you, how, how can we use mindfulness to communicate more effectively? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the, the two most important aspects, the first is, is using presence and just trying to bring more awareness to the fact that we're communicating. You know, a lot of us move through our lives and our relationships, our email, our texting, not actually making conscious choices about what we say, or even the fact that we're speaking, that we're communicating. You know, half the time when someone's speaking to us, we're not actually even listening, right? We're planning the next thing we're going to say, or we're writing our grocery list, or whatever, you know, a million other things uh, move through our mind. So, you know, the first main area of training is just trying to bring awareness to our interactions and our communication, and just noticing oh, I'm speaking right now, like, what am I saying? Why am I saying it? Where is this coming from? Do I want to be speaking right now? If someone's speaking to me, okay, can I just listen? I can actually just not do or say anything. You know, and that in and of itself is huge. 
just being able to slow down enough to remember when I open my mouth, I'm making a conscious choice to speak and to put something in someone else's mind. And that's a really powerful action. That's the power of our words is that we're actually creating something that goes into someone else's mind. But so there are two parts of this, though, because listening, Mm -hmm. uh, which most of us don't do or only do half-heartedly, is one thing. But then uh, and I can it's I can more readily imagine how you can use meditation, which helps you just be here Mm -hmm. uh, to listen. But when you're speaking, that's a that's it seems like a slightly trickier Mm -hmm. uh, endeavor. Yeah, it's different for different people, interesting enough. I find many people listening is easier huh. to bring presence to, yeah. but for some people it's the speaking part that's easier. Um, it just takes practice. It just takes practice. It's it's difficult or challenging because it's unfamiliar and we haven't actually done it. Um, so, yeah, bringing awareness to listening and to speaking is is the first kind of basic training, slowing down some being able to take a pause, to have more choice, and in particular, noticing that at any given moment, we actually have a choice about whether to speak, listen, or just stay silent. And that's kind of one of the most basic fundamental communication tools that's often the least practiced is actually to say something or not say something and to choose consciously about that. Can it get weird if you don't say anything? I feel the need to sort of rush and fill every silence. Now you're looking at me not saying anything. (laughs) I think it's one of the great ills of our society that people don't appreciate silence. You know, it doesn't have to be some, you know, awkward, deep, soul-searching stare, you know, that that's... But um, there's something quite lovely about being able to just be with another human being and not need to fill that space. And, you know, there are different people in our lives based on our relationships with whom we can share that to varying degrees, right? Um, So I'm not suggesting that everyone be silent all the time or anything like that. I'm just saying that recognizing that we don't always need to say something, you know? Somebody says something, it's enough to just go, "Mm, mm mm-hmm, you know, instead of kind of adding to the verbal diarrhea that's just kind of everyone's just popping off all the time. Uh, without any sense of awareness of what we're even saying or doing. How do you apply this stuff in acute situations when somebody's, you know, at work in a high-stress environment Mm -hmm. said something that's triggered you or you're in a relationship and somebody's, Mm -hmm. you know, said, asked you to do something you don't want to do or or you realize they haven't done the thing you've asked them to do? How do you, Mm -hmm. in those moments when when your dander is up? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it takes training. Uh, one of the most useful things that I could share, I think, for people out there listening, um, that you don't need to do weeks and weeks of training for, is to come up with a few uh, lines and memorize them that you can use in a pinch. Things like, I think I'll have to get back to you on that. You know, or I'm not sure. I'd like to think that over. Could we talk about that more tomorrow? You know, or... um wow, you just said a lot. Um, I'm not sure how to respond. You know, these kinds of canned phrases that create more space in a conversation, in a relationship for us to actually um, put like it's like a fire break. Yeah. 
and that and that gives us some space to um, keep from saying things that are going to complicate the situation, which later we're going to regret. Now, to, in order to be able to do that, not only do we have to come up with a few lines that feel authentic for us that we can work. Oh, <laughs> not only not only do we need to do that, um, but. Um, but we need to actually train ourselves in the awareness to recognize when we're getting triggered, when right, we're, when we're right, getting right, activated right. by someone else, because that energy is so strong that we, we, we go into automatic to defend ourselves or to attack or to respond or to disagree right away. So, And that's, that's where the meditation piece and the mindfulness piece comes in, is that in our meditation practice, we're sensitizing our nervous system to actually recognize the difference between being present, clear, and attuned, even just for a moment. We have that, that micro moment of just feeling a breath, being right there, knowing what's happening, and something inside registers like, oh, this is what it's like to not be a basket case, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, half a breath later, the mind's back doing its normal thing. But now we actually have something to compare to. We actually have a reference point and then our nervous system starts to learn and remember the difference between being driven, unconscious, overactivated, and even being a little bit more grounded and self-connected. One of the, one of the things you said repeatedly that I think is comforting is that this is a practice. We shouldn't expect, oh, we start meditating a little bit and then we're, not, we're never going to put our foot in our mouth. It's more that um, over time, once you tr- make a decision that, oh, I'm going to try to um, – not pop off as much and and also to listen to people when they're speaking mm-hmm. which is a bit of a radical act you just it's just like meditation where you just um try and then get lost and start again right yeah and what you're what you're talking about Dan is the second thing i wanted to say before when you were asking okay well what can people actually do without yeah. doing so the first thing was bringing more presence to our conversations, just trying to be more aware of the speaking, of the listening, of the space between those. The second thing is what you were just mentioning, which is our intention, and actually being conscious of our intentions in communication. You know, where am I trying, where am I coming from here? You know, where am I trying to nudge things, or why am I engaging right now? Am I trying to make myself look good Am I trying to win? Am I trying to dominate the other person? Am I trying to make them feel bad? Um, Am I genuinely interested? Am I trying to understand something? Am I trying to connect? Uh, Am I trying to make this person feel good about themselves? You know, there's this whole range and spectrum of intentions that are constantly operating behind the scenes. And for most of us, most of the time, it's mixed. It's a mixed bag of intentions. Um, but when we actually start to recognize that those intentions are driving our conversations and our life, then we start to be aware of them and we can begin to uh, have a little bit more choice about where, we're, what direction we're aiming in with our life. And so for communication in particular, one of the most powerful intentions that I've found and which I emphasize in my teaching is the intention to understand and to connect. And I say that that's one intention because they're really two sides of the same coin. When we try to understand each other, that's leading to more connection. Or if we're just if I'm just trying to connect, just have that sense of being here with you as another human being, 
that's going to bring up more understanding. And so all of the other default uh, motivations that come up in our relationships and conversations, sometimes when it's just too complicated, there's so much going on. If we if we train ourselves to just come back to that core intention of curiosity and care, that can be a guide, and that's it's really transformative. Yeah, although I think most of us, you know, when we think, you know, our our intention in communication is just to get our point across, you know, and make sure that right. people do what we're asking them to do, or right. or understand why we're doing what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. What you're talking about is a pretty wholesome motivation. I don't know that to the extent that any of us has ever really examined our motivations mm-hmm. for in communication. It seems like a pretty big leap to get there for that being my motivation for mm-hmm. all of my communications. Well, I don't think it needs to be the motivation for all of our communication. It's not about becoming a saint, although, hey, if that happens, great. Um, it's more It's more about having choice about our intentions and recognizing what's actually in our best interest and um, trying to get people to do what we want. Um, I think one has to look at, well, not only what do I want someone to do, but what do I want their reasons to be for doing it? Mm. And when we only focus on what we want someone to do, we'll use, sometimes we'll use any means possible, manipulation, coercion, threats, blame. Um, but when we actually look a little bit deeper and say, okay, well, not only just what I want that person to do, but why do I want the, why do, what do I want their reasons to be for doing it? Then we actually recognize, oh, gee, you know, I want them to do this because they value this or they see how it's going to help the situation or they care about me or they care about this particular project and I want them to do it for the right reasons. And then when we see that, then our angle will be very different in how we approach the conversation. And, you know, I don't think you mentioned most of the time I'm just trying to get my point across. I think that's a perfectly wholesome motivation. That's about understanding. It's about trying to uh, feel heard and understood in ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I, I see nothing wrong with that. But the, the you know the question then becomes like, how skilled are we at helping others understand us, and at really being able to communicate clearly so that we can get that understanding? And when that's not happening, when there's when there's some blockage in the way, are we able to kind of say like, okay, maybe I need to put my piece down for a few minutes and find out what's going on for them so that they feel understood and that block can kind of settle. And now, oh, all of a sudden now there's space for them to hear me because I've sort of showed up and listened to their side of things. People, I mean, I found, uh, just as, I I don't know if this is from meditation or just getting older and less stupid, um, that especially in, in interpersonal relationships, it's really important for people to feel heard and validated, you know? Mm-hmm. Even if I disagree with my wife on something, but if I mm-hmm. say I, I understand what you're saying and I understand why you feel that way, yeah, though that, that actually can just defuse the situation, not not magically and not a hundred percent of the yeah. time or a hundred percent of the way, but it it uh, it goes a long way. It does, and and I like that word you used, magically, because it is. It's like sometimes it's like magic. Sometimes, yeah. There's there's this there's this thing that happens when we actually see one another and understand one another that um, the conflict transforms. And instead of, instead of us fighting about something, butting our heads, 
um, all of a sudden we're actually looking at the situation together. We're sort of, we can be on the same side problem solving rather than having this blockage between us that we're fighting over. Yeah, and I think one of the common... You see how I allowed the silence there? Yeah, you did. That was great, Dan. <laughs> I really appreciated that. Oh, I did. You could see, you know, I was, there was another thing that came through my mind that felt important that I wanted to share. Um, I think one of the one of the barriers to uh, doing this that a lot of people find um, is that there's a misunderstanding um, that often we we believe that understanding where someone's coming where someone's coming from understanding what matters to them and their side of things means that we agree with it mm. and that's actually not true you know there's a difference between empathy and agreeing you know so i can i can understand um where somebody who has drastically different views than I do. I can understand where they're coming from or what's behind their views, what they're trying to accomplish, right? Um, but still completely disagree with how they're going about it and the ideas they have about, you know, what's going to make that possible. But I can still understand where they're coming from or what matters to them. Um now, if I if we called Evan in here, your girlfriend, who mm-hmm. again, as we've said, is in the, in the control room watching us, um, uh, it, would she say that you 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 uh, practice what you preach most of the time, all the time? She's 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 nodding and shrugging and saying yes. And when you said all the time, she shook her head no. <laughs> <laughs> but but the most of the time, got it got a got an honest yes. Yeah. So some so even for you, it's a practice. Oh, completely. Yeah, completely. You know, I've I've been training in this long enough that um, for most situations, it's where I go as my default. It's not a could that be annoying though? Because sometimes you just want you, you know I don't uh, sometimes you just want to see somebody you know feel something. Uh, get well, I, upset. F- I feel things. Yeah, I get upset, but it's just it's just how I choose to express that. It's, you know, using these tools doesn't mean that we don't feel anything or that we're somehow, you know, sweet and nice all the time. Um, I was teaching a, a course recently, and, you know, at the beginning I often asked people, you know, what's your intention? Why, why are you here? What, what are you hoping to get out of this? And someone said, uh, you know, uh, I just, I just want to be a nicer person. And I said to the participant, I said, I don't think I can help you with that. I'm not interested in people being nice. I'm interested in them being more real and being more genuine and honest. If that's something that interests you, I can help you with that. Because I don't think being nice generally serves anyone. What I understood underneath that, I was playing with her a little bit, obviously, but what I understood underneath that was she was saying, you know, I want to come from a place of care and uh, be respectful of other people and engage in a way that doesn't cause harm. That's something I can also help someone with. But being nice has that sense of, of putting on an air and, mm. pre- and pretending and so using these, using these tools doesn't mean that we somehow all of a sudden um, don't feel emotions or don't express them. Quite the opposite. I think actually we have more access to our emotions and are able to express them more fully and authentically. But the way that we do that is constructive. Yeah, I think what people want, uh, or at least uh, to speak for myself, is, is just not to, to mess it up so much, yeah. you know, that, because this is an area where we just, we just screw up all the time. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, um, I think the tragic part is, is that, um, those mess ups are, uh, they're just convoluted expressions of, of things that, uh, don't need to be so, uh, confrontational and divisive. Yes. Yes. You know, but we but we don't know how to say it, or yeah. it comes across the wrong way, and then the other person reacts and get defensive, gets defensive, and then we don't know how to backtrack and say, no, 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 wait, that's not what I mean, and you know, so then we end up kind of embroiled in this. There's an expression that the Buddha used. Uh, I've now I've made jokes about this, become the kind of person who quotes the Buddha, which is weird. But um, but there was an expression. There was a ex- conversation between the Buddha and his son mm-hmm. Rahula, mm-hmm. Uh, where. The Buddha says, and you correct me if I'm wrong about this, because I'm, I'm, I'm worse than being the type of person who quotes the Buddha. I'm probably the type of person who misquotes the Buddha. But um, he, the Buddha said, as a rule of thumb, try to say that which is true and that which is useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a pretty good rule of thumb. I try to stick to that. I don't. I usually don't uh, succeed, but that it, it's it's a really good fallback. It is. It's great, actually, and it's. Um it's there are actually four things that the Buddha said that one should check in with before you speak to see and and whether it's true is one of them. You know, is this actually correct? This information, what I'm about to say, is it useful? Is this gonna is this gonna be helpful? Um, and then, but then there are two more. Uh, the third is um, is this coming from a place of goodwill? Is this kind? You know, uh, sometimes we have to say things that aren't easy to hear. Um, that might be disagreeable to someone else, um, you know, from something as simple as like, hey, you got some spinach in your tooth, right? Mm. Um, but it's coming from a place of kindness, right? So is this, even if it's something that's hard to hear, is it coming from a good place inside? That's the third. And the fourth is, is this the right time? Because we can have something to say that's true, it's helpful, it's useful, uh, it's coming from a good place, but it's just not the right time. Right. So one wants to look at all f- all four of those factors and, you know, try to balance them. Yeah, I mean, he was a smart dude. Um, so let me ask you some just general practice questions. Yeah, uh, please. Uh, so what does your daily practice look like? Um, I, I sit, uh, so I don't, I don't do some, I don't do movement every day. Um, but a few times a week I'll do, even if it's just a few minutes of yoga or some Qigong, just to try to relax the body, open the body up. And how, how much sitting do you do? Uh, it varies. Um, usually I aim for at least 20 minutes, uh, if, if it's a, a busy day or things are happening, um, but sometimes up to an hour. And uh, what morning. what is your what what are the nuts and bolts of your practice once you're on the once you're sure, on the cushion? Sure, sure. Um, it the so uh, the beginning of my practice um, generally I don't do anything. I, I find that um, my life uh, there's I'm using my mind to do things all day long whether it's talking with someone, you know, figuring out how to get from point A to B or, you know, working, writing, planning. So often the first part of the sitting, you know, might be five minutes, ten minutes. Um, I'm, I'm consciously trying, just allowing my mind and my body to shift into a space of, of being, 
of not of non doing. Well, when you do that, don't you find that you're getting super distracted? <laughs> Whenever I try to like consciously not do something, I end up you know having an argument with somebody in my head or, or planning something or whatever. Mm. Well, you have a pretty good base of, of concentration after all of these years, so I would imagine it's easier. You know, concentration isn't one of my strengths in practice, actually. So I, I'm not. I, I wouldn't say that I I um, I'm a, I'm an easily concentrated practitioner. Um, I have a good base of embodied awareness. So okay, it, define that. Uh, just being able to feel my body. Just very simple, rudimentary. It's a fancy expression, but it just means that I can sit here and feel my body without too much effort, you know, and, and can stay connected to that experience. And that sounds pretty like, well, so what? But it's actually, it's actually huge uh, because the body doesn't go into the past. The body doesn't go into the future. The body doesn't lie. It's just here very directly and simply. So in those first five to 10 minutes, I'm often just um, giving the mind space to do whatever it needs to do, unwind, even kind of wander off a little bit. But there's there's a frame uh, of feeling the body sitting. Um, and so then I'll, I'll also often, um, in that space, just come back to the sense of the weight, the heaviness of the body, feeling it sitting, um, and using that contact and the sense of gravity um, as a ground, as sort of like a baseline and then allowing the rest of the body and the mind and the emotions to just sort of knock around on their own. Um, and it's like letting it come into alignment or letting it come into balance. Sort of like if you imagine you had like a big, um, uh, a big sort of soft bed uh, with some various marbles around and you put something really heavy in the middle and just held that point down and other things would just naturally start to roll down into that middle. So that's sort of the first period of my practice. And then, uh, you know, the actual bulk of the meditation, uh, depending on what I'm focusing on in my practice, might vary. So at different times, I've done more metta practice, more loving kindness. Uh, so using the phrases, cultivating. Just for people who don't know, the phrases are metta, which we've talked about on the podcast before, but other people might. This may be your first Timeless, uh, M-E-T-T-A, meta, meta practice is where you systematically envision people or animals and uh, send them uh, good vibes through phrases, which usually are, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. So that's, anyway, that's just explaining what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, it's not as fluffy as it sounds. Um. Sharon was on once, and I described it as uh, Valentine's Day with a machete to your throat. Uh, <laughs> she, yeah, she, she, she probably laughed. She laughed, yes. Yeah, but there yeah. was a little bit of a, there you go again in, in, in the laugh. Um, but yes, I agree. Yeah. It does sound super fluffy, but it actually is uh, has yeah. a lot of value. Yeah, it's just, it's just that sense of recognizing that we have the capacity for goodwill and for basic warmth. And then it's it's accessing and touching that capacity again and again, and through that process, strengthening it. So um, I've done that for periods of my practice, um, uh, oftentimes just uh, using the breath um, as a way of cultivating calm and concentration. Um, other times, uh, if there's for a period of the sitting, if there's something going on that I'm wanting to look at, or something uh, difficult or challenging. And then I might call that situation to mind and use kind of a reflective investigation 
to examine what's happening there in my life and using using both the clarity of the meditation uh, and the skills of attention to um, uncover what's driving something in my life, you know, some difficulty, some problem, or if I have a decision to make uh, that I feel conflicted about, um, I'll sit, you know, let the mind get quiet, do some practice, and then uh, bring that situation up. And it's not like analyzing it or thinking about it. It's it's more a sense of uh, listening for, um, you know, how does this feel? How does this feel to me if I think about going, you know, in direction A and then just kind of feeling it out, you know? Well, it kind of feels a little unsteady or uh, something tightens inside, you know? I feel a little bit anxious. Don't really know why, but that's what's going on there. And then let that settle and then take option B. Okay, how's that feel? Ooh, I kind of feel everything kind of relax. That feels kind of like a relief. Well, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Huh. You know, and so there's just a different way of getting information. And then later on, I might actually I might actually think about it intentionally and say, like, well, you know, what am I anxious about there? Why does this feel like such a relief, you know? So I, I use the tools of meditation um, uh, in different ways based on what's needed. I don't know how much of a – you said – Concentration isn't, you know, your strong suit. So maybe this is still an issue for you. But you wrote a uh, really good blog post recently about um, the moment where you wake up from distraction, mm-hmm. and that, that's just a huge problem for, uh, you know, especially beginning meditators. But um, I would venture to say almost every meditator. It's just a big part of practice, which is you get. We're going to get lost a million times. Yeah. And you have to start again and again and again. And your argument is just really to try to reframe it as a win. Yeah, it's not even. I mean, you could call it a reframe. I think it's actually it's an accurate understanding of what's happening. That it it is a win, right? It's we're practicing awareness. So anytime awareness returns, that's a good thing. Yeah, but isn't it a bad thing that awareness has gone away? You know, I don't, ex- I don't, I don't, I don't think of it that way. That's just—is it a bad thing that the wind blows? Is it a bad thing that you hear sounds? It's just—it's just natural. But isn't the goal of med- I, I'm being devil, I'm playing devil's advocate here. But it, when, when the goal of meditation is to you know be, stay focused on what you're trying to focus on, and so it's hard not to to see getting lost as and just in that in the very phrase getting lost. Uh, you know, we, we see it as a sort of a you know a, a derivation from the goal. Uh, the goal of meditation, as I understand it, is not to get focused or stay focused on an object. That's a tool that we use to strengthen the ability of the mind to see clearly. And the goal of meditation is to understand what's happening in our mind, and that comes through observing it. One of the things that's happening in our mind is that it's wandering. When we understand that process, that's the goal of meditation. So I get how when you say, and I don't think this is your term per se, but your your argument is that we ought to look at that moment of waking up with some delight. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it just keeps happening over and over over and over with rapid succession, it can get pretty, you can get, it, it can become wearisome you know, just to have to wake up again and again and again. And one, one does not, you know, it seems, for me at least, uh, I often start, 
if, even if I can make those first two or three moments of waking up a little involve a little less fl- self-flagellation, after a while, it gets old. I mean, this is a really important uh, point in exploration, and the 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 big picture level is that um, feeling discouraged feeling weary, feeling disappointed, feeling frustrated, all of those experiences and responses are feedback. And they're indicating that something is off in our practice. So that's that's the first point, is to actually start to recognize when those emotions and, and emotional responses and tones are coming up, um, what it means is that something's off. It's a kind of it's a kind of a friction, and that means that the parts aren't perfectly aligned. What could be off? So so what's off is um, there's a certain expectation and an idea. Like we're trying too hard. We want something. That's another part. So um, yeah, trying too hard, wanting something. Um, and th- the ideas that we have about the meditation. So one s- idea that you have that's very um, uh, embedded, it seems, from the conversations we've had is this idea that um, being focused on on one thing is the goal. And if I'm not doing that, then I am somehow failing and the meditation isn't working. I understand that. I get that completely. I have suffered a lot over that. And I remember one meditation retreat I was doing, going to one of the teachers in tears and saying, like, you know, I don't understand, you know, if, you know, to you know really uh, make progress and have insight, uh, I'm supposed to be concentrated, you know, but, you know, every time my mind kind of goes bonkers and is like getting sort of on this emotional roller coaster, you know, I'm not being concentrated and therefore I'm not doing well and I'm not getting to the place that I'm supposed to, right? And just being so tied up in knots around this idea of what's supposed to be happening and how it's supposed to look and what I need to do in order to get to this imagined result that I'm looking for. Um, And it's taken, you know, years for me to actually, initially just first to understand intellectually, like, well, you know, it's actually, that's actually not quite right. That the process is going to involve getting lost, and that's not a detour. That's actually part of it, is allowing yourself to get lost and, and understanding that process and, and um, understanding the mechanisms that that triggers the self-judgment. What's going on there to get interested in that? Wow, look at that. Man, I just really, you know, I just really put myself down. What's going on there, you know? Or the frustration, you know, like, okay, where's that? You know, like, oh, wow, that's interesting frustration. To include that in the meditation, to include all of it, to not make any part of it something gone wrong. So if you uh, wake up on the cushion and realize you've spent 17 minutes thinking about, you know, the various plot twists in The Godfather uh, Part 3, mm-hmm. um, you, uh, you, there isn't a, a huge sense of disappointment or failure? No, not anymore. 
I had one meditation teacher who said to me, um, and t- take this with a grain of salt because it's a, it's a, it can be misused. Um, but she said, you know, after you know decades of meditation practice, I've learned to lower my expectations. <laughs> <laughs> And that's not to say that we don't try. It's not to say that we don't make effort, but we adjust our effort. We learn how to make effort in a different way and that the effort we make isn't for a certain result. That's like, that's the counterintuitive um, paradox of meditation and why it's so different than everything else in our life because everything else in our life works um, following a very simple formula. I am at point A, I want to get to point B. I make effort, I move towards point B, I get there done. That program of um, goal, aim, energy, accomplish, that program doesn't work in the realm of spiritual practice, meditation, mental cultivation, whatever you want to call it. Um, It works to a certain degree. um, But the effort that we make isn't to produce a certain result. The effort that we make is just to be here and understand. Just to understand. It's the same effort we were talking about in the communication practice. And that's why communication and meditation for me are so similar. Because it's the same fundamental, um, at the root, it's the same fundamental intention that's guiding it. It's this shift from our habitual programmed default intentions to get what I want and make things go the way I want them to. Two, oh, what is this? What's going on here? What's that about? How does that feel? Oh, what would it be like to just check this out? You know, that's very different. It, t- it takes... Um, a certain kind of a letting go. And it takes a willingness to be humble, to not know, to make space, to allow, to be patient, right? Those are very different energies and intentions um, than uh, we rely on in our day-to-day life. But what ha- what happens is, um, is, is, is two things. So one... The very process of of turning towards an experience and being willing to understand it, that movement of the mind strengthens a whole host of qualities. It strengthens energy, patience, calm, interest, honesty, integrity, care, kindness. All of those qualities come along in the process. And then, as those qualities strengthen, we actually start to see clearly, oh my God, I never realized that. Mm-hmm. And then insight arises. So that's why that moment of the mind wandering and then awareness coming back, in that moment, the return of awareness is not something we do. So the fact that one is getting tired isn't about, the awareness returning is actually energizing. The tiredness comes from the you know, the way we slap ourselves afterwards and then struggle and fight. So, you know, we get curious about, okay, what's extra? What am I adding after the moment of awareness returns? 
And then as we get curious about that, all of those other qualities and, and uh, factors in the mind strengthen. So when I'm practicing and I wake up, and it's the 18th time I've had to wake up in, in, in 30 seconds, mm-hmm. the move is just to get curious about the reaction that's happening in my mind naturally. Mm-hmm. So yeah. just notice oh, self-flagellation judgment. Yeah, yeah. Notice it and um, actually feel it. You know, and, you know, the noticing it takes some of the, the defangs it a little bit. It's like, you know, there's that sense of to being able to notice it. Um, it's like unplugging it so it stops having juice to keep going. That's that's the first that's the first step is to be able to step back from it in some way so that it's not still um, being fed. Then there's often there's still going to be this kind of residual flavor right, um, in the heart or some tightness in the body or even kind of the echo of the thought in the mind. So then it's to notice and get curious about that. It's like, wow, how's that feel? What's that like, you know? Ooh, this feels awful. And the more we see and really, really uh, taste how awful it feels to judge ourselves for trying to meditate, you know, um, something gets learned. It's like, why, I mean, why do I keep doing that? You know, drop the hot coal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so last little avenue of discussion. It's not a little avenue; it's a big one. But, but uh, curious. You you talked a lot about goal, uh, mm-hmm. and mostly in the sense that you um, sometimes we we are goal oriented in the wrong way. But do you have a goal for your meditation? You're trying to get enlightened, and what do you? What is your? How would you even define enlightenment? Big question. Yeah, big question. I do think that there's a goal, um, and I do have goals for my meditation practice. So it's not, it's not, you know, one of the, uh, there's sort of two extremes or two dangers in meditation practice. On the one, on the one hand, um, we have a, what, you know, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche called spiritual materialism, that um, we just transpose our um, culture's emphasis on success and achievement onto our meditation practice, and we get overly goal-oriented and we strive and we're trying to produce a certain results. That's one end of the extreme. The other end of the extreme is to have no goal at all. Well, enlightenment is here and now and there's no goal and so it's all just about being present and relaxing and not doing anything and that's actually uh, not really true either from what I understand. There is, there is you know, real work to be done um, but it takes, it takes a balance of those two and being in the middle um, so, you know, for me, I, uh, I understand and articulate the goal, um, to myself in different ways and, um, in the most, uh, kind of practical, um, immediate way, um, the goal is to be more aware and, uh, kind and to, uh, live with integrity, which means that I'm I'm connected to what I value and I'm acting in the world based on those values. Um, and for me, I, that's success. None of that is particularly mystical, however. No. But what about, you know, experiencing the unconditioned or, uh, you know, becoming a 
an arhant who doesn't uh, experience um, greed, hatred, or delusion. This, you know, this, these are the types of things that Buddhists talk about a lot. Sure. That, that you, you didn't mention any of that. Yeah, I'll bring it on. <laughs> uh, sign me up, yeah. Um, so that that is a way that I articulate the goal for myself also. As I said, there are different ways that I conceive of it or think about it. And, and you know, I think that they're different— they're, they're different sides of the same coin. So when if if you if you ask yourself, well, what would it take to live a life um, fully connected to awareness and compassion, not driven by uh, my own self-centered whims, and uh, you know, really deeply connected with a sense of integrity and aware of my values and continually making choices based on those values uh, without shame or fear? What would, what would it take to do that? Well, that would take a pretty radical transformation inside. That would take a pretty profound letting go. It would take uh, a letting go of uh, anxiety. It would take a letting go of um, my ideas of who I am and wanting to be seen and perceived in a certain way. It would take a letting go of uh, my distaste and aversion to things I don't particularly enjoy. Um, it would, you know, so, you, you know, when one looks at it in that way, it's like, wow, that would be huge, right? Um, so for me, um, the result of deep awakening is being able to live in this way. Mm -hmm. And actually they can work in both directions? Yes, completely. Yeah. So, you know, I find, well, if I'm making effort to live with awareness, to be kind, to be clear, uh, to make choices based on my values, then every moment that I'm able to do that, um, I'm uprooting all of the things that prevent me from doing mm -hmm. that. And, um, you know, depending on what metaphor you want to use, you could say, I'm moving closer to enlightenment or awakening. Or one could say that um, I'm actually beginning to embody that more and more. I'm allowing uh, my mind to inhabit that space more and more. Because one of the things that Menindra said to me uh, early on in my practice, I was asking him about enlightenment and how to get there. And, you know, he said, enlightenment is not over there. It's, it's not over there. If you're trying to get to enlightenment, you're going in the wrong direction. Mm. It's here. So it's something... I always find that very frustrating because if it's right here, then I'm a complete idiot because I don't see it. That's hard. <laughs> hard on myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well welcome to being me. You ever try to... F uh, um, it's not just you. I mean, I'm hard on myself too sometimes uh, still. Um, it's like it's like seeing something that's always been here that we keep forgetting and the problem isn't that it's so esoteric um, or uh, mystical it's that it's so subtle that we keep overlooking it we keep overshooting it. We keep moving past it. So the very effort of the mind to look for something is a movement away from it. Mm. 
So what is it? It's not an it. <laughs> it, do, it can't be conceived of or understood by the mind, by the, by the conscious thinking mind. It's, it's a different, uh, you know, there's all kinds of analogies one can use. It's a different order of uh, experience. It's like if you've never eaten a mango and someone says, well, what does a mango taste like? Is it kind of like a banana? Is it kind of like ice cream? <laughs> You're like, well... Yeah, it's sweet and it's smooth and it's it's a little bit tangy. It's, oh, it's kind of like a lemon. Well, no, no, not really. You know, you you have to taste it. So, I mean, that's a little bit of a cop out, <laughs> but um, yeah, but it's very beautiful. I think you know, it's um, you know, the Buddha said it's um, it's peace. It's uh, peace beyond understanding. Because understanding something is still in the realm of duality. It's still in the realm of something to be understood Mm -hmm. by someone. And um, it doesn't operate in those terms. You know, and and he also said, you know, there is this. There is the unconditioned, the unborn, the unformed. Uh, If there were not this, there would be no escape from the conditioned, the born, the formed. But because there is this, the unconditioned, the unborn, the unformed, there is a release from this realm of uh, insubstantiality and change. I mean, I think it's all really cool and inspiring. I just don't. I mean, I guess you can't understand it until you've tasted it, and and then I don't know that I can believe in anything to which I don't have, currently have access. So it's like. And the beautiful thing is about it is that one doesn't need to. Well, I don't think one needs to believe in any in, in any in any of it. Just keep practicing. Just keep practicing. All kinds of all kinds of uh, all kinds of experiences can unfold, and the the process is just uh, is just keep showing up, being honest, and looking at one's experience. And as the mind gets quiet and still at different times, uh, it sees and understands things differently. And you know the beauty again. The beauty of it is that one doesn't need to be mystical um, and have. Uh, a belief in that to practice, to look inside one's mind, and that the very process of practicing and just being curious and open um, brings about benefits. And as those benefits strengthen and as the mind gets more clear, other possibilities open up. And so, you know, if I were to say anything, it would just be, who knows? And just to keep an open mind, to just say, well, maybe, maybe not, I don't know, but why not look? I mean, for me, so going back to the, you know, that time in my, in my uh, early 20s when I first started meditating and practicing, I had been studying religion uh, at Columbia and reading all of these different texts from different traditions, whether it's, uh, you know, the Veda and the Upanishads or uh, Sufi poetry um, or Jewish mysticism or the Tao Te Ching. Uh, and you know other later Tao, Taoist poets, or even the transcendentalists in American literature, or the Buddhist literature, just reading and just hearing from so many different people through the ages uh, these accounts of experiences beyond what we can see and know ordinarily through our senses. And to me, when you know, it's not just like one quack out there writing about something. It's people from across all different traditions, all through time, writing about other ways of experiencing being alive 
and a sense of uh, deep peace and knowing and connection. There's got to be something there. There's got to be something that people are actually touching into, whatever you call it, what, you know, and whether it's you know, what this person wrote about is the same thing or different than what this person experienced. So who knows? But there's something there. There's something, you know, it seems like it, it, it would be impossible that all, you know, through the ages, people would be experiencing and writing about uh, a, you know, some deep level of reality without there being some uh, actual basis to it. And so that, that um, and then meeting people who actually spoke directly, meeting people face to face saying like, no, this is possible. That's not BS. This is real. And not only is it real, but you can know this for yourself. You know, that really inspired me to say, wow, gosh, you know, and not just, you know, Menindraji or Godwin, who are, you know, these older Asian men who wore white, you know, South Asian men. I think, wow, you know, like meeting people like Joseph or Sharon or Steve Armstrong or Kamala Masters or Michelle, you know, meeting, uh, you know, the senior teachers in the insight tradition here in the West, you know, speak of speak of their own experience, you know. Joseph's a New York Jew, you know, like, it's just like, <laughs> if he can do it, you know, why can't I? And that's, that's, that's the energy. That's the sense of like, hey, this is, this is here for me too. It's not just for some, you know, amazing being somewhere far off on a mountain. It's like, this is something that anyone can experience if they, um, they receive the right instructions and they have the willingness to put forth the energy. That was also well said. I think we'll just leave it at that. That was great. Uh, where can people learn more about you if they if they want more information? Uh, the best place, Dan, is my website, which is orenjsofer.com, O-R-E-N-J-A-Y-S-O-F-E-R.com. And where can we get that Skittles ad again? <laughs> my mom's attic okay, and the VHS okay. tape. All right, I'm on it. Um, also, uh, we should say that if uh, you, you've... Uh, your communication course is on the 10% Happier app. You're right. also, we just shot a course on emotions that's going to go up soon. Uh, lifesavers. Lifesavers. It was lifesavers. It was lifesavers, not Skittles. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Um, well, you're a lifesaver, my friend. Thank you very much for doing this. It's really a pleasure, Dan. It. All right. There's another edition of the 10% Happier podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. 
You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.